Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. This is Dr. Bud Marr. Uh, we are coming to you live from Mercy One uh, Studio of Iowa Catholic Radio here in Des Moines. Where, <coughs> excuse me, I am the director of Mission and Ministry at Mercy College of Health Sciences and the director of the Zine Institute for Foundation and Ethics and Leadership. You can find us at mchs.edu or zetainstitute.com. Bud, out there in Pittsburgh, how are you doing? Doing okay here at the National Institute for Newman Studies in um, beautiful Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, newmanstudies.org. So, uh, we're. We got all sorts of important things to talk about, but yeah. one opening the show is: is everybody becoming a raider who currently lives in Pittsburgh? And how are you guys all coping? No, I, um, I, I think right now we're going through the jaded girlfriend stage. <laughs> I hope that's all right to say on air. But everyone's like, "Yeah, we didn't want him anyway," and uh, you know, uh, he didn't deserve us. But we want, I, I, we want Bell to be at the Jets. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some genuine anxiety because the Browns last night, um, mm. they traded for Odell Beckham Jr. And so now um, we no longer have like the best receiver in the division. And it's just kind of embarrassing to lose to Cleveland. Yeah, shots fired to all of the, the Cleveland people that listen to our show. But I, I, don't, I don't think we're really in that market yet, bud. So we can still talk about the Browns all that you want to. Um, you know... Our show is underwritten as always, uh, underwritten, excuse me, as always, by uh, Cartridge World. So if you need to pin a letter, um, if you need a journal about how you feel about mm-hmm. everybody leaving your team, uh, you might need to spill a lot of ink, and Cartridge World is a great place to do that, uh, to get the ink to do that. 8173 8173rd Street in Windsor Heights. Yeah, well, this Sunday, um, the NCAA is going to release the brackets for the the big basketball tourney. So I know a lot of, uh, at least in my household, we print out brackets all over the place and, and paste them on the walls, et cetera. So uh, Cartridge World, all your bracket needs, but also if you need some tips on how far K you will go into the tournament, right? you can talk to the folks over there. You can also uh, print out a bracket about which teams are going to be part of the FBI federal indictment. Um, <laughs> or if you need to keep track about which actors and actresses have put their children at $50,000 a pop on uh, tertiary sports. There's a lot to keep track of in the sports world, bud, and Cartridge World can help you figure that Come all on, out. Come on, Creighton University. Ad majorum day glorium, you know. <laughs> and where did that $100,000 get you? Yes. I, I think they were out in the first round last year. So. Uh, touche. Again, uh, another market that we're not in, so you know what? <laughs> Let it roll, bud. It's okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, as always, brought to you by Mercy of College of Health Sciences, where we don't even have teams for people to take bribes, folks. That's where... No, I'm kidding. Um, what the team that we do have is a team of people that uh, go into the health science field and uh, take care of people. Um, I don't know if I got a chance to say this on air yet, but so uh, we've welcomed uh, kiddo number five into our ranks. Her name's Helena, and we were at uh, Mercy Hospital, and I had something to the order of like seven or eight former students uh, running around. We Our night nurses were people who were in Bud and I's classes, and it was uh, not only a great honor to get to see that, um, but... Truly, there is a mercy difference when you get the students out there, and it was really great to uh, 
be a part of receiving that care. No, that's really cool. And then the baptism itself took place at Mercy College, right? So that's right. That's it was a very mercy-bathed birthing and baptismal process. That's right. I think I had to <laughs> sign on a dotted line, and Helena has to be a nurse now. But, I mean, we'll deal with that later, bud. Okay. <laughs> yeah, mchs.edu. Um, of course, we're kind of getting into the spring break uh, sort of time period in the semester, which is a perfect time to consider whether you'd want to start the summer or get started in fall. All sorts of things you can do in accelerated BSN online programs. Like Again, check us out, mchs.edu. So, Bud, on today's show, talking about not only uh, interesting topics, but um, things that people can do in and around the Des Moines area, uh, the guests that we are having on... Uh, Dennis McNamara, who has wrote, you know, people ask me, okay, Bo, you think church architecture's, uh, the bee's knees. How do I start to figure it out, understand it? I think he's wrote the book on it. It's called, um, How to Read Churches, uh, by Dennis McNamara, um, where he talks about sacred architecture, excuse me. He will be in town Sunday, March 24th. Uh, but he's on our show today, and so we're going to talk about um, church architecture and the common good. Uh, very excited to get to be able to um, talk to him, and we want to thank uh, Una Voce Des Moines for getting that set up. Yeah, Bo, I mean, not to get too much in the conversation, but this seems like an area uh, in, our, in the church's life today where maybe there's a lot of questions and even misunderstandings. Like, we, we so many of us are drawn to these beautiful old churches, and there's just a common sense, like, could we still even pull this off today? What does it mean to balance like um, beauty with stewardship? So I, I'm really jazzed about this conversation. Right, it's going to be great. And if you want to hear more, Dennis, uh, do, uh, excuse me, Doctor McNamara will be at St. Anthony Catholic Church uh, on, like I said, Sunday, March 24th. Uh, we'll have the traditional Latin Mass at 9:30, but then a lunch and lecture at 11. Uh, so he's over in uh, at Mundelein Seminary, and that's where he uh, is the uh, academic director and associate professor of Sa- sacramental aesthetics at the Liturgical Institute. So it's going to be a fantastic talk. You don't want to miss out on this. Um, like I said, uh, we want to thank Una Voce Des Moines for getting this set up, and it's always wonderful to get to uh, talk to people before they come into town and be a part of the Des Moines scene. So hopefully you guys get a preview and uh, it stirs you to want to come out on that Sunday and come see him. Um, yeah, bud, so uh, I don't think you'll be able to run over, uh, but maybe we can sneak in some Facebook live time for you to see the talk if uh, Brian Gonzalez isn't looking. Yeah, that's uh, that's my oldest daughter's birthday, so it's an easy date to remember. But if you can if you can pirate some video, I would certainly be interested. <laughs> that sounds, sounds like a plan. So this is The Uncommon Good. Stick around after these messages. We'll be back uh, talking with uh, Dr. Dennis McNamara. But if you want to leave questions, if you have questions about the way of the world, what are the uh, Steelers doing, what do we want to ask Dr. Uh, McNamara, you can call, uh, text us on the Zip Whip line. 515-223-1150. That's 515-223-1150. The Zip Whip Line. Hashtag UCG for the uncommon good. Hashtag UCG for the uncommon good if you want to leave us a question. If you have any comments, uh, we always like to tell folks that the eagle screech returned because people use the Zip Whip Line. So, you you know, we do listen, not to everything, uh, but we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, so 515-223-1150. The Zip Whip Line. And we'll be back after these messages.
Thank you, Blessment International, for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Everyone lives their life 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. How we use that time directly affects if our life will leave a significant impact or not. Each year, Blessment International leads Central Iowans on a 12-day, all-inclusive experience sharing the heart of Christ with children in South Africa. Teams are forming to do something significant in an African child's life. Learn more at BlessmanInternational.org. That's BlessmanInternational.org. Rock Valley Physical Therapy, dedicated to your health and well-being. Serving patient needs to making better lives, we have outstanding outpatient physical therapy, occupational hand therapy, and sports medicine rehabilitation. Rock Valley offers unprecedented one-on-one care. With seven convenient locations in the Des Moines metro to the southwest Iowa area, we serve the entire diocese. For more information, rockvalleypt.com or 515-221-1621. Rock Valley Physical Therapy, making better lives. Support for The Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies, including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts. 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family-owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full-service print shop ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. Forms, manuals, brochures, letterhead, envelopes, business cards, custom invitations, design and bindery. Big Red Q Quick Print, located across from Merle Hay Mall. Online at BigRedQ-DesMoines.com. Big Red Q Quick Print. We make printing easy. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We're glad that you're joining us on this Wednesday. Today we have with us as a guest Dr. Dennis McNamara. Um, he is the academic director and associate professor of sacramental aesthetics at the Liturgical Institute of Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. He's going to be in town in Des Moines Sunday, March 24th um, at St. Anthony Catholic Church um, at 11 o'clock. Uh, giving the talk, Church Ar- Architecture in the Liturgical Movement, Making Sense of the 20th Century. Dr. McNamara, thank you for making it on the show with us today. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, like I've said before at the opening of the show, we uh, your book about how to read churches, um, I've assigned multiple times, and every time I get a chance to tell people, um, it's a wonderful way um, to, to to get people into talking about church architecture beyond sort of like the mere, I think I like this or I don't. Um, can you talk about that real quick, about maybe to reorient ourselves into the understanding of, of sacred art and, and sacred architecture, the idea that you read it? What, what does it mean to read a building? Well, you know, building's very much like a book in that it tells you what it's about. So, you know, if you think of a font on your computer, you can pick a fancy font or a simple font or an ancient font or a modern font, and those are all fonts that just accentuate a particular style. And many people look at architecture that way. They say, like, modern or whatever. The real question is, what is the font saying? What are the words reading? What are the idea they're conveying? So architecture does the same thing. 
you know, more complex building will be a more important building in the city, for instance, a uh, building made of rare materials or with a high level of craft or one that's centrally located, usually means it's something important in the life of a political or religious uh, community. And so you can really read architecture on many levels, both within itself, but also what it means about the nature of human activities and which ones are more important than for the common good. See, uh, I'm glad you said that. We've, we've said this before on the radio show, but Bud and I uh, had the chance to teach a class together, and we, we talked about this reading the modern world versus the ancient medieval, and we said oftentimes in the middle of cities you'll put what's most important, and so what's in the middle of a, a, a medieval English, you know, European city, and they're like, okay, cathedrals, everything like that. The kids sort of know that one. But then we ask them, well, what's in the middle of modern cities? And first of all, they're all confused, and then they all finally come around to realize, right, that it's usually the financial districts with the tall uh, skyscrapers made of steel. And we ask them, what does that say, right? How do you read those two worlds, depending on what they put at the center of cities? And on one hand, it's it's great to do this exercise to have them start thinking, but I'm always taken aback how little people go to that sort of idea. I mean, they eventually come around to it, but it's so alien to them that you can read what's important to people by how they construct cities. Do you think that there's there's a wall that we, we either like how we teach people or how we talk about it uh, that, that makes it where it's hard for us to see this idea that you could read a, a, a church, a building, a city by how it's constructed? I think it is hard for us because we don't like to think much in our generation. We like to <laughs> feel, right? So we look at something and we say, oh, I've never seen that before. That's cool. And cool doesn't really mean anything. It means I've had an emotional response or I've had some kind of pleasant sense experience. But, you know, that would only be a very minimum approach to anything in the ancient or sort of classical understanding of things. You would say, what is the nature of this thing? And what do I know in my mind is more important? And then I look at the thing and say, is it revealing its own importance. You know, in, in the study of theology, we call that a study of ontology, which is the study of being or the nature of a thing. And so what I always teach my students is if you don't know what a thing is, then you don't know what to do with it. So, you know, uh, questions of slavery in the 19th century were around the question of are people human and what are human rights? And so if you don't know what things are or what people are, then you don't know what to do with them. So architecturally, it's the same thing. What's a city? It's the place where people come together to live the just and good and, um, you know, common life together. And in the Christian worldview, of course, that's always based on right relationship with the Creator and the grace that He offers to help us live that common life. And so, therefore, traditionally, anything that was sacred was higher than secular in its importance, and anything that was public was higher than private. Um, and so the cathedral of the town being the most sacred and the most public would be the most important building. Of course, in our culture, things that are secular are considered more important and things that are private are considered more important. So we always put our money into our countertops and our house and live in the bur- in the burbs with our three-car, two-car garage. And then we say, oh, cathedral, uh, let's have some lemonade sales to pay for that. And um, it just shows a kind of reversal of our priorities uh, culturally. Yeah, I mean, a, a bologna sandwich on a marble uh, kitchen top, that's always... I'm always wondering what's going on. I'm maybe I always just blamed me to be honest. I'm like, well, you're kind of a tubby person, Bo. You'd eat off a plate on the floor, but I like how you put it that we'll we'll marble plate uh, our kitchens for very mundane things, and uh, you know then go worship God in glorified barns. That's a that's a good way to put it. One of the interesting things too, of course, you know, if you talk about the questions of justice uh, in the proper sense. You know, a homeless person living under a bridge does not go home to a leather sofa and a marble countertop. Probably the only time they'll have access to 
art and live music and beautiful stained glass and marble is when they visit a church. And so, you know, a beautiful church, I'm not, you know, I'm not denying anybody the right to have a nice countertop, uh, just at the expense of the public good. Uh, so, you know, beauty in the public sphere is not just for the rich people. It's not just about spending money. It's so that everybody has access and they have an understanding of what the most important things in the, in the society are. Yeah, we just lost all of our countertop underwriters. Yeah, right. Show. Just no. straight out the window. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Dr. McNamara, this is Bud. Um, you know, as someone who didn't grow up Catholic, it's been really moving for me to watch my children internalize the faith before the age of reason. So, like a few weeks ago, my, my two-year-old son, he was difficult for like 90% of the Mass. But at one point, he, he took some holy water and crossed himself and, and genuflected towards the altar. And I thought it was really cool that, you know, like, at that age, um, um, children can already get a sense of what's sacred. And I guess my question is sort of two-pronged. You know, when I, when I go into old churches, I'm struck by how almost every inch of the church there was an intentionality to what was done. Like, you'll go to the back of a pillar that almost no one would see, and there might still be, like, an intricate artistic design. And historically, why do you think we, in some ways, drifted away from that? And... Uh, I guess, do you think there's a real loss where, um, you know, like, it feels to me like so much of the formation of the faith today is very intellectually driven, and maybe it's because literacy rates are so high and we think, like, well, this is the main way, you know, people will come to know God, where there are still uh, many people in our society, you know, children, of course, um, but uh, others from different walks of life where, um, like, beautiful art can be uh, a really powerful way for them to know more about the faith. Yeah, well, you know, to me that comes back to the nature of a church building again. And, you know, we're sort of used to worship involving words. You know, we say things and things are said to us. And we receive, our, you know, the seven sacraments as, you know, appropriate to our state in life. But there's a whole wider view of things. You know, Romano Guardini, who was one of the famous writers of liturgy in the, about liturgy in the early 20th century, uh, had one of the chapters in, in one of his books. It was called The Playfulness of the Liturgy. And people might balk a little bit and say, no, liturgy's serious, but his second chapter was called The Seriousness of the Liturgy, so he, he dealt with them both. But he said, kids play things not as they are, that's what they want to become. So you never have a three-year-old kid playing three-year-old kid, right? They play <laughs> astronaut or doctor or whatever, you know. Three-year-old even kid. Like, He's got it. He's got it. So he can do three-year-old kid. <laughs> <laughs> even potty training or something is like playing, how to be a grown-up. And so play is how you experience something with all of your senses and your mind to become what you aren't yet. Uh, even if you're practicing basketball or whatever, you want to become the next Michael Jordan. There's always something about play that you're on the, in the process of becoming more than you are. So liturgy, for every Christian, is the practicing of becoming heavenly. It's the practicing of becoming your perfect self that God wants you to be for eternity with him. And so that's not just words. That's not just the Eucharist, although obviously that's at the top of the hierarchy of things. It's what do you sing? How does it sound? Uh, what does the building look like? Are you seeing the angels and the saints and windows and stained glass and architecture and art and mosaic? Because then you know you've gone into this world that includes all of the heavenly things that you're going to do forever. And so if you told a kid, you know, you're going to play house, but you can't have a stove and you can't have, you know, opening the door and honey, I'm home and all the things that kids do when they play house. All you can do is look at each other and say words to each other. You'd say, well, you're not really experiencing the process of playing house because you're missing all that stuff. And so the visual component of that glorious heavenly future is really an important part of 
becoming a fully glorified Christian. And it's not just on the edges for, you know, people who like pretty things or art historians who like to show how snooty they are by having a, you know, more sophisticated church than the people at the next parish. It's really integral to the nature of the Christian um, pilgrimage. Well, so you bring up Gardini, and not to make the whole show about um, a particular theologian, but um, just to be selfish, I've been reading a lot on, on him, again, because I'm giving a paper at the end of the month about his views on technology. Uh, that, uh, in many ways, his view on technology show up in Pope Francis's Laudato Si. So he talks a lot about um, you know, human activity in accordance with nature or against it. He gives this very interesting um, figure for people to think about that, you know, used to sailboats would go with the waves across the lake, but now that we have motorized boats, they can cut through the waves. And it starts to be interesting what you were bringing up, right? The playfulness of the liturgy and also its role in, um, you know, orienting human life beyond itself. I sometimes think what, like, I don't want to say people openly hate the beautiful, but we've really given them a chance to think it's absolutely worthless, right? Because it doesn't technically do anything, right? It, it's not, there's no techne uh, to the beauty of art. Um, you know, it, it, art in, it is, like you said, it's almost like wisdom in stone. It, it, it's playfulness. It's for its own sake. It points beyond itself. But we are sort of trained to go, what use is this painting, right? What use is uh, g- doing this adornment? And so we get a real hatred of adornment as, a, as if adorning things is just sort of something extra we do, although there's all sorts of things in life, right? Like if you're burying, you know, a loved one, um, adorning a coffin that you'll never see again doesn't seem, you know, wasteful. So I think there's little notes here and there where people have that view challenged, but I actually think the sort of technological view of life makes it where it's hard for us to read churches, and I don't know if that comports with some of the other things you've seen in your studies or teaching. Yeah, I think you're, you put your finger on something very important there. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that feed into this. The 20th century modernist architectural movement was not a Catholic movement. It was a secular movement. It was enlightenment movement that didn't trust materiality. Um, you know, if religious experience was based in the emotions, you know, if you had a religious experience at all. So when you hear any of the modernist church builders of the 20th century, for the most part, who weren't even Christians or believers at all, they would say, well, you know, I, a religious experience is when I see light across a surface and I have an emotion that feels transcendent, and that's as far as they can go. So they think if you make a curved concrete wall with some hidden light source and then you see shadows across it, well, oh, that's light breaking into the world, and that's kind of all they can do. But a Catholic understands the goodness of creation, and they understand the particularity of God's revelation, that he came as a person, and this person had a nature as the Son of God, fully man, fully divine, and had a relationship to God the Father and the Son, and the larger question of the mystical body, which includes every worshiping person and the angels and the saints and, in fact, all of creation. So, you know, an empty concrete wall with light across it is not the same as showing you the vision that St. John had in the book of Revelation, where he said, I saw the one on the throne and the angels and the saints singing, holy, 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 and heaven is made of gems, and there's the garden imagery and trees that provide medicine every month, and the river of the water of life is coming through it. And so we have a great Catholic vision, which is this world will be glorified, and the new heaven and the new earth will come together as Christ brought nature and God, creation and God together. And so we try to represent that artistically. That's the nature of the place of liturgy, which is at God's throne for eternity. 
when you start to talk about it that way, at least in my experience, people say, oh, it's not just fussy stuff for like, private devotions. Like, no, it's in the very nature of the liturgy itself that this is where and how this liturgy happens and also who celebrates it. There's a great chapter in the Catechism, I think in the 1180s, where it says who celebrates the liturgy, and it gives this long list. Uh, the white-robed elders, the mother of God, you know, all these things. And if you don't encounter those things, then you're actually not having full participation in the liturgical experience that you're supposed to have. So it's actually very Vatican II language in a way. People should experience fully and actively the, the fullness of the liturgy, and most of the time we give them a kind of thin, minimalistic gruel instead of the full, glorious feast. You kind of hinted on this, um, at this with your last comment, but you know, um, it's it's... It's strange to me that, uh, like, when the church encountered so many other cultures and eras, it, it seemed like the the baptizing or the integration of other cultures took place in a lot of cases in, in very powerful ways, like Baroque architecture or or Gothic during these different um, stages in the church's life. Why do you think um, the use of, of of modernist ideas about architecture like that didn't turn out as well? And do you have Examples of like, well, here's a case where modern forms were appropriated like in in a beautiful way. Well, yeah, that's a good question. You know, if you look at art history, they just say this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it's all a formal discussion. It was round arches, then it was pointed arches, then it was this, then it was that. And it's all analysis of the forms. To me, that's like saying, looking at the history of hosts for the Eucharist, you know, sometimes they were big, sometimes they were little, sometimes they were imprinted, sometimes they were square. You know, it's like, right. okay, well, that's nice, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. can we talk about the nature of the Eucharist and what it means to be in the real presence of Christ? So, you know, art history doesn't look at things from the lens of sacramental theology, meaning, you know, what was this building trying to make present to us in the world? And that's, that's an important thing, because God's far away, in a sense, right? He's ineffable, as we say. He's unknowable to our senses, but Christ made him knowable. And so our challenge always is, how do we do what Christ does, either when you take care of the poor, you're Christ for someone, when you love your children, you're Christ for your children, when you feed the, the homeless, you know, you're Christ for them. But I think as an artist or an architect, you can say, how can I be Christ for the world? How can I let this glory of God's love know, be made knowable to people? And it, sometimes that works with pointed arches, sometimes it works with round arches, sometimes it works with, you know, other things in history. But modernism as a theological movement and a philosophical movement was fundamentally sort of contradictory to the revelatory power of Catholicism, because it grew in many ways out of the Enlightenment's sense that matter can't reveal anything beyond itself. And so if you're going to say matter can't reveal anything beyond itself, how can you have a Catholic worldview? Because the Catholic worldview, by definition, uses matter <laughs> to reveal that which is beyond us. And I think that's why modernist architecture often doesn't work, because its inherent premises are wrong from the beginning. And the best Catholic architecture is the one that uh, modern architecture is the stuff that oozes into the great tradition and has stained glass or saints or mosaics or something like that. And the farther it gets from that, uh, the less satisfying we find it, because God's not an abstract cloud, right? He's a person who comes to us in Christ with a face and who speaks and who tells us what he wants and that he loves us and that the angels and saints are praising him as well and he wants us to join that heavenly chorus. And if modernism by definition just says, well, it's something found in a vague sense of emotion, then it just doesn't jive well with Catholicism. And it's not about anti-modern, it's about anti theology, <laughs> that's not adequate for the, what Catholicism is supposed to do.
I always feel that they don't even do, like that sort of take on art history doesn't do the incarnational of history, sense of history well either. It's like you said that, you know, round or pointed arches sort of just appear out of nowhere. Where actually you go look at, again, this is a hobby horse I have, but we'll sigh largely, but you go look at like the Norman Towers in Sicily, right? And they have Moorish windows and they're this weird sort of beautiful mongrel mess of like all these different cultures because these different cultures like ran into each other and then all these mm-hmm. people decided to make these decisions about um maybe we should include that that's nice uh these all things come together they don't even do the history of it well and i'm with you that it's one thing to act like the world just sort of like turns and things magically appear but even if you're not going to do the theology well like you're saying the revelation of the ineffable in the effable you're not even going to do the sort of way in which humanity. Like, yeah, it it just drives me crazy that uh, we we worship a God who came into time and took on human flesh, but we won't even look at the fleshy parts of something like architecture. Well, and uh, I don't know. To me, there's a great loss even in that. Like you said, acting like it's just one formal transformation after another instead of a story of a people. Right, and you know, with with medieval architecture, with Gothic architecture in particular, we're lucky that. The man who invented Gothic architecture, more or less, Epit Sujet in France, was a very literate guy, and he wrote a couple of books about what he did in the first Gothic church, Saint-Denis, in Paris. And most people look at those buildings and they say, oh, it's an engineering solution, so they can have bigger windows and more light, and you know, they think of it like structural engineers. But if you actually read what he said, he didn't talk about engineering. He said, this church building is an image of the heavenly Jerusalem, and what is the heavenly Jerusalem like? Well, if you read the book of Revelation, it's made of gems who represent people brought to glory, and then it's radiant with the light of Christ. So he wanted bigger windows filled with stained glass so the building would better sacramentalize the heavenly reality where the windows look like gems and the light of God is coming through. And then he had to come up with an engineering solution to have big windows right. in the building that wouldn't fall down, right? But what we tend to do is look at it the other way. It's, oh, it's an engineering solution, and then move on. They totally miss the fundamental um, sacramental theology behind it and what someone's intention was, which is, to me, kind of shabby history. Um, but that's kind of what passes for the standard in the field often. Oh, that's great. So we're coming up on a break. We'll be back after a little bit. Um, Dennis, it's been fantastic so far. If you hold on for just a minute or two, we'll uh, listen to the sponsors, then we'll get right back into it. This is The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr. We'll be back right after this. Remember, folks, if you want to keep up with us uh, with what we're doing here on Iowa Catholic Radio or seeing what is going on in the Diocese of Des Moines, you can always follow us on social media. Just go to Facebook and look up Iowa Catholic Radio, uh, at IA Catholic Radio, um, on Twitter, and then uh, you can do the zip-up line, 515-223-1150, and then our bi-weekly newsletter, and always you can go to iowacatholicradio.com, listen to the live feed, sign up for various things that are going on, look at the schedule about what we do on air, and uh, even register for events that are coming up. So um, everywhere you turn and look, we're there with you. Um, I think we even have an Instagram account where we take pictures of um, food people accidentally left uh, for lunch. So now, I'm getting laughs. That's a no. So, anyway, you, you follow Twitter and Facebook. We're good on that. This is the Uncommon Good. We'll be back after this. Vitae Family Care is part of the Iowa Catholic Radio family. Pro life physician Greg McKernan, a DO, has practiced for 27 years, seeing patients of all ages with just about every kind of need. 
Dr. McKernan lives his faith as a physician and is trained in NAPRO technology, allowing him to diagnose and treat many female conditions and even markedly reduce the occurrence of a miscarriage. VitaeFamilyCare.com Remember, Vitae is Latin for life. When you donate to CTO, you're helping more and more families send their kids to Catholic school. That's great, because more and more families qualify for tuition assistance every year. Your generosity makes a huge difference for thousands of families and kids who really need help. Plus, your donation qualifies you for great tax credits. Want to help? Please donate at ctoiowa.org. Let's do this for the kids and their future. Support for The Uncommon Good is provided by Cartridge World. Cartridge World is an industry leader delivering high-performance printing products that help you save time, money, and print great. Perfect for businesses, home offices, college students, or busy moms trying to find affordable printing supplies, including ink, toner, paper, or printers. For business customers, pickup and delivery are available. Products are guaranteed or full replacement. Cartridge World, your low-cost, environmentally friendly printing experts, 801 73rd Street in Windsor Heights, 515-564-7400 and online at cartridgeworld.com. At Golden Rule, you already know we obey the rules to live by. We know that there are no medals for providing outstanding customer service. It's just what you do when your customers are like family. That's why we provide state-of-the-art training for all of our employees. From customer service to routine maintenance and new equipment, you can always count on Golden Rule. And by taking care of our family, we can take better care of yours. I'm Bobby from Golden Rule, where we deliver respect, understanding, loyalty, expertise, and service every time you call. We have a standard and we prove it online at goldenrulephc.com. Back with the Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. We have with us today someone that not only can you listen to as we're talking to him on the show, but they'll be in uh, Des Moines here soon. It's Dr. Dennis McNamara, uh, Academic Director and Associate Professor of Sacramental Aesthetics at the Liturgical Institute of Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. On Sunday, March 24th, um, you're invited to St. Anthony Catholic Church, the tra- traditional Latin Mass at 930, and then a lunch and lecture at 11. Uh, the title of the lecture, Church Architecture and the Liturgical Movement, Making Sense of the 20th Century. Uh, Dr. McNamara, thanks for being on our show and coming back after the break. Happy to be here. I could do this all day. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> one, one of the things I already know that's going to happen is we're going to get into this, and then it will be uh, right on, approaching an hour, and we really feel like we've only just hit our stride. Um, so for for folks that go, like like you're saying, um, they hear, oh, we're going to talk about liturgy, and they go, oh, well, this is just something, you know, like you said, for fussy people who 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 care about um, pretty things a little bit too much. I just want to, you know, go do the mass, eat my donuts, and get out of there. Uh, a real quick pitch: Why should someone who's never come listen to a talk about the liturgy or church architecture come this Sunday? Uh, the Sunday that's coming up. Well, you know, the re- the great rediscovery of the 20th century that led to Vatican II is that um, God wants us to enter into the dialogue of love with him. I think there was a long time we thought, okay, liturgy is the thing the priest does at the altar, and I sit here and do something else. I say the rosary, or I think pious thoughts, or whatever. But what the 20th century rediscovered was that Christ is a, is a mystical body, and the head of that body is the priest, but the members of that body are the people in the pews. And this is why, how we talk about active participation, that you offer yourself with Christ to God the Father on that altar. And even before Vatican II, Pius XII said that active participation, he defined it, was 
uh, offering yourself as a victim on the paten with the priest, which isn't popular lingo these days to call yourself a victim, but Christ is the true victim, and in the biblical sense, a victim dies, but then, like Christ is risen again better than when he gave himself to be destroyed. And so our job to enter the Paschal Mystery is to actually do our place in what Christ is doing in heaven, which is being led by the priest, but is not only for the priest. And so if you understand active participation properly, it means you do what Christ does. In other words, you follow the words and the intentions of the priest and offer yourself to be destroyed and risen again. And if you only see liturgy as the thing you have to go to because it's a duty or else it's mortal sin or whatever, that's only a little tiny participation rather than saying this is opportunity language where the whole reason God sent Christ is now being made real in front of me. And I can watch it or I can do something else or I can move my mind and my heart and my will to say, yes, Father, I join myself to Christ's own sacrifice and I allow myself to be destroyed and risen again like a grain of wheat that falls and grows and produces fruit uh, so that we can produce fruit in the world. And with that understanding, it's uh, a much different experience of liturgy than doing it out of mere uh, duty to God for making you. Although we have that duty to God <laughs> for making us, it's actually much more than that. You could imagine if you had to count, like, how many times do I have to hug my child today so that I'm not considered a bad parent? Well, <laughs> that's a minimum. That's not really that good. But and it's how eight. much that's can what... I love my child? No, right? <laughs> no, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just said that the, 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 I looked on the Internet, eight. Eight is oh, eight. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's but Matt, look at it this way. I will love my child so much that this child grows up to be a person who knows what love is and loves me. That's a very different experience of parenting. Uh, and you could think of liturgy that way, too. That God gave us this, the right, the church, the priest, our baptismal dignity, and we can enter into liturgy that way. And when that really sinks in, you know, that's a whole different way of doing things than a fear-based understanding of doing the minimum. Dr. McNamara, this is a topic of interest to me, but by way of confession, I'm not super familiar with the history. And at different points during the interview today, you've talked about, like, insights that Vatican II or that Pius XII gave. Um, if someone wants to dig deeper, are there documents that the Church has promulgated regarding specifically architecture? And, and when a community goes to build a new building, like, how much freedom, in, in a certain sense, do Catholic communities even have? Like, there are some things that are absolutely necessary, right, like uh, an altar. Um, but what kind of directives exist for, like, the different elements of the Church, like where the baptismal font goes, where the, where the tabernacle goes, etc.? Well, you know, the, because the, the Church, as a universal Church, realizes that people in different parts of the world with different norms are going to build different ways that make sense to them, there are very few specific directions. I mean, where you would go to look is chapter 5 of the general instruction of the Roman Missal that talks about art and architecture. Uh, even more importantly, there's the right for the dedication of a church and altar. It's now called the order for the dedication of a church and altar. It was just re-translated and approved by Rome. It's available now. And it actually tells you an altar should be this. It should be fixed to the floor. The altar signifies Christ. The building signifies the, you know, the living stones of the church. And so you get some good theology uh, there. In the United States, about almost 20 years ago, the Catholic bishops put out a set of guidelines called Built of Living Stones, which basically summarizes the general instruction, Chapter 5, and gives a bit of um, other suggestions. And then, you know, local dioceses, each diocese sometimes has uh, norms that, that govern their own local uh, decision-making. But for the most part, there's a lot of freedom in building churches, with a few exceptions. 
And um, that's where it relies on an intact Catholic culture to help people understand what a church ought to be. And if our Catholic culture is not very intact, then oftentimes you get churches that don't look too churchly or they don't look Catholic or you have a sense something's wrong with them. So what I've tried to do is provide the sort of intellectual rooting for that culture of the nature of church buildings and, and the liturgy to help flesh out the bones that the church gives. This is kind of a brass tacks question for our listeners here in Pittsburgh. I mean, sadly, we live in a in a city where you're seeing more and more churches close. And so what happens sometimes in the wake of that is, well, um, just real specifically, like there's a brewery a mile from where I work called um, Church Brew Works, and it's a, it's a former church. Like the, mm-hmm. the vats are near where the altar used to be. For the most part, Catholics should avoid places like that, right? Because it creates maybe like a sort of like, I mean, you're doing, you're in, in what should be a sacred place. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about churches that have been repurposed? Yeah, well, you know, a church has a, a consecration, and a church can be deconsecrated and in a sense, so it's not, uh, it's not like moving into an operating church and kicking everybody out and putting in a brewery. Like the building, yeah. I'm sure, has been deconsecrated in the proper I way. So. But it's still kind of painful to us because all the sign value that we recognize, oh, that's a church. And, and I know the church you're talking about, they did actually quite an exquisite renovation of the, the yeah. paintings and everything. And uh, in a sense, I'm glad they did that. On the other hand, it is painful, but it shows what happens. You know, obviously there's still people around, right? We can say, oh, people move away, but there are enough people there to support a bar, but there are not enough Catholics to support a church. And so it's painful uh, to see it. I just kind of hope that someday, you know, enough Catholics will have a revival and they'll buy the church back, and it's better than yeah. tearing it down and putting a parking lot there anyway. Um, for the moment, it's being kind of in cold storage as a brewery in a way, um, and maybe it'll come back to its proper use someday. Yeah, the, that's the only thing that bothers me about stories like this. I was like, used to when we got booted out of churches uh, because of world events like at least it was like they got conquered and were made into mosques, and then we conquered it back, and you know, back and forth, right? There's like churches in Spain that have been churches or mosques like two or three different times. It's kind of sad that it's brewery. I guess it's at least it's not uh, like a coffee shop where they really specialize in pumpkin spice latte or something like that. <laughs> like, you know, if I, if I had to decide who I was being conquered by, I suppose. Um, I, one thing that I think about too, right, is when we talk about. Um, there's a chicken and an egg argument that maybe we just give the good old Catholic both hand and 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 put it to rest. But there's this idea, right? So are people going to come around because we actually get architecture right, or is it that the architecture suffers because, like you said, we don't have the Catholic culture to maintain people who care enough about it to put in the money or anything like that? Um, but I, I think what a theme that's going along with what you've said the whole time is that unless we start seeing the sort of incarnational nature of both, right, that it takes body and soul for not only people, but for a community to be alive, that that might start to be part of it. Um, We've had on a guest before, William Cavanaugh, who talks about excarnation versus incarnation. Um, Is that something that we have to, you know, Catholics on the ground who want to pay attention to beauty, do we need to pay attention to incarnating beauty and maybe that's something like instead of buying a replication of a really nice piece of art from rome that we we actually find a real life artist and pay the extra money to have them do the work of art is there a way that facsimiles of famous beauty undermines 
what what we need to be about when it comes to supporting and patronizing people like painters and sculptors and things like this. Yeah, that, that's uh, a bit of a double-edged sword because you want to have live one-of-a-kind artists doing one-of-a-kind art pieces. On the other hand, sometimes your local artist isn't that great, you know, or they don't understand theology. And every pastor has stuck with the painting that some pious lady, you know, did and said, oh, Father, can we put it in the sanctuary? And then the pastor's like, okay. And then the next pastor, nobody can touch this horrible homemade amateur thing because uh, it's now been there for a long time. So that's always the challenge, you know, how do you find excellence and theological richness? And then it, you know, because a half baked thing is not going to make someone come into church, a sophisticated person come into church and say, oh, I know I see how important this is for my life. You know, kitschy art supports all kinds of people, and so I, I'm not as hard on kitsch, uh, you know, plaster statues and all that as some people are, because a lot of people do find it nourishing. But I think at the end of the day, you have to say, God wants to break in and touch somebody's heart. You know, how is that going to happen? All right, well, maybe I loved someone into the church, right? Someone says, you love me so much, where does that come from? And then you say, well, it's the life of Christ in me, and okay, I want that too. Or you argue someone into the church, so let's talk about Thomas Aquinas' arguments about one, two, three, because somebody's mind dominant, someone's heart dominant. But then, you know, beauty by nature is is what makes the truth attractive. You know, this is what John Paul called the splendor of truth in his encyclical, and it's a classic way to describe it, that if your good content is not beautiful, it's not splendid, then no one's going to want it. It's like the, the deliciousness of food. It could be nourishing, but not delicious. And so if we present ourselves, which we so often do in the church, with, you know, mediocre churches, banal music, not performed well, you know, crummy-looking windows of low quality, not-so-good preaching, and, you know, and, and then we don't teach our kids the fullness of the faith, and we sort of say, well, that's good enough for them, and then we, then we wonder at the end of the day, why does nobody come? Well, because... If it were a restaurant, it would be close, right? Because right. <laughs> the food is terrible, the decor is horrible, uh, the maitre d' is not friendly, and nobody's teaching you a good menu. Uh, somehow we miss out all, on all of that. So if we really want to talk about evangelization, we have to tell the fullness of the truth in a beautiful way, in all the ways that that happens. Visual, musical, uh, what do you say? Goldsmithing for chalices, right? The literature uh, proclaimed well, the divine revelation of Scripture. What does a homily sound like? Every every sense that is touched in liturgy can become either, hmm, this is boring and unconvincing, or, wow, this is compelling, and I want more of that, and uh, beauty is the central feature of all of that. Yeah, I think that, you know, my shtick is, I think low art and high art can save the world. It's the middle that uh, that turns souls away. It's like, it's inoculation, right? We give them... I mean, education's easiest to see this. If we give them just enough of the faith that they form antibodies around it, those are the hardest students in college that I've ever had to try to convince of stuff. I would rather deal with someone who has literally never heard the gospel than someone who's heard just enough to be confident in their dismissal of it. And I think beauty works the same way. I think someone who's who grew up on kitsch, and I'm thinking of myself as white trash, oaky, Southern Baptist, and the sort of art we had, it's one thing to grow up on kitsch, because then you really can see, like, oh, this is what greatness is. But it seems to me that if you just feed people the mediocre, the not that great, like you said, like the, the, the middle class of art, then then they think it's just preference and feeling, and then, you know, oh, well, you like... Oh, you, you like that art? Well, that's your opinion, I, you know. And and I think that it's like you said. It, it it's I don't want to say that it's sloth necessarily, but but it starts to seem that way that that none none of us feel like the the fire underneath us 
to demand that if we're going to say that God is the highest and the best and that we want everyone to come be a part of our church, that we have to not only put our money where our mouth is, but also um, our d- desire and our taste and our demands to match up with what we say about who God is. And, and sometimes I think that's the harder for, thing for people to understand. It's one thing to write a check uh, to, you know, to, to get something good happening. It's another to say like, hey, if you think you are an adult in the faith and you're ready to move on from spiritual milk to spiritual food, you have to do a little bit of work, right? Like things that are good and high art, taste takes uh, time to, to, to develop it. And I think sometimes people think like, well, either I have the taste for high art or not immediately. And, and that, frankly, that's why I, I love your book. I think it's a, a very good introduction to how people can develop the taste for these higher things that, as you say, end up being some of our best tools for evangelization. That's right. And, you know, when you grow up to the higher things, you inevitably become called a snob, right? Because it's sort of like being out of Plato's cave. You've seen what's outside the cave, and it's hard to go back. And the people in the cave don't understand why you're dissatisfied. And so John Paul, in his letter to artists, said uh, that artists have this vocation to see beyond the mediocre world and to see the perfection. And that's a great gift, but it's also very hard for them because they're constantly faced in the world of mediocrity and the people who don't care about the vision of perfection that they've had. So he asks artists to be patient with non-artists and for artists to be patient with artists because artists are always dissatisfied <laughs> by definition. Um, and, you know, if you tell somebody, oh, well, you're mediocre and I've been out of the cave, then it's kind of a mean, snobby thing to say. So, you know, there's always the, the macaroni and cheese version of life that most of the world is satisfied with. On the other hand, you know, and back to Romano Guardini again, he said liturgy should be um, refreshing to the man of culture and satisfying to every day. So it can't be so lowbrow that nobody can find it um, ele- elevating, but it can't be so highbrow that most people feel like they've just gone to some weird museum performance. And so finding that balance, to me, always comes back to the nature of the liturgy itself. What are you revealing? You're revealing the love of God, the fullness of God, a relationship to God, Father, on Holy Spirit and how we're united to Him. And so charity for everybody is always kind of the hard thing uh, to manage in those situations, but always calling higher, always calling more, I think is the right way to go. Dr. McNamara, I know you're more on sort of like the academic side of the conversations or like the history of it all, but if there's a local Catholic community that wants to build a beautiful church or do a beautiful renovation and they're trying to balance like the aesthetic questions with stewardship, do you have any kind of practical advice or even maybe like I don't know, architects they could go to where you're, you could say, like, I'm confident that this person will guide you well. Yeah, that's a, it's a hard thing today. You know, in a, if people who want a church that, quote-unquote, looks like a church, the number one thing they can do is find architects who are trained in traditional architecture. And, you know, if anybody's listening to this, and I hope there are, and they've been snoozing up till now, wake up now, because here's the most important thing. Put asterisk and highlighter around this. Hiring an architect who has specialty training in traditional architecture is the most important thing that any church-building community can uh, do. Because everybody's got a brother-in-law who's an architect or a sister-in-law who knows somebody or so-and-so's on the parish council. And if they don't understand how the pieces go together on a column, and it's been established for you know several thousand years now how all the parts relate, what they do is they sprinkle traditional stuff around, and it looks like a strip mall or something, but it's not really convincing. Mm. And what in the end, what happens is you spend all your money, and you get this kind of illiterate, typo-filled, grammar-mistake-filled building, and you still spend all the money. You could have the same budget and have an architect who really knows what they're doing, who 
who knows what sacramental theology means. You know, most architects don't study this. A lot of times I tell people, ask in your interview an architect, how are you going to make our church an image of the heavenly Jerusalem? And if they don't have an answer, then they're not your architect, because a church is an image of the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, which is this heavenly perfection described in the book of Revelation. Uh, so that's the number one thing. Does your church architect know traditional design inside and out and backwards? They have a, a, a history of doing it properly. And that, that eliminates about 98% of architects in the country, maybe even more, because it's such a, a skill. It's sort of like asking your, I always say, it's, you don't ask your podiatrist to do brain surgery. Mm. Um, they might be good at podiatry, but they're, you don't want them learning on your brain. The same thing with traditional architecture. You don't want them learning with your yeah. $10 million budget or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, the only um, warning I have is once you talk to people who are trained this way, just know they're going to ruin some churches for you. And what I mean by that is, so I'm friends with Andrew Wilson-Smith, who's son of Thomas Gordon-Smith, yeah. so he's 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 very well the uh, drink of the waters of architecture. And I'm showing him a church, I won't say where, in case people listening know where it's at. And I'm like, this church is great, right? And he points out, he's like, these arches um, support nothing. And I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, dang it, Andrew. <laughs> yep. I can never enjoy this church again. Uh, and you know, the thing is, people are illiterate about architecture. And if you, know, if you paid a, a, a novelist to write you a novel or a poet, and they gave you something back with no allusions to history, grammar mistakes, yep. typos, right. badly formed sentences, passive constructions, you'd be like, wow, you don't really know what you're doing. Why am I giving you $10 million? Yet we pay architects to do exactly the same thing, and they don't even know the content of the faith. And so when you wonder, well, why does this church look like that, you know, meeting hall down the, the road, um, yeah. and people pay all this money, and they're dissatisfied from the, from the day it opens, and they just kind of live with it, uh, that's really, really sad. And so you can have a great architect who still meets your budget and gives you something that's proportional to your actual budget and puts the money where it matters, like at the altar, for instance. Um, the altar is Christ standing amidst his people, rendered architecturally. That's what the church teaches us. So does your altar look like the glorified mystical body of Christ who's you know, laid himself out for you at the, the feast of the heavenly Jerusalem? And therefore, is it the most important thing in the room? Does it sparkle with heavenly glory? Is it made of materials that appear transformed and transfigured and glorified? Um, and if your architect doesn't know that, then they'll just do the spindly wooden table and put lots of money in the bathrooms, you know. And uh, Either way, you're spending the same money, but you're not spending it theologically or properly. Well, Dr. Dennis McNamara, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Unfortunately, we got to go. Um, just like uh, let everybody know again, uh, because of uh, Una Voce Des Moines, so thank them again, you will be in town Sunday, March 24th, uh, the traditional mass at 9.30 at St. Anthony's, followed at 11 by a lunch and lecture. And like I said, if people want to read more about you, they need to get your book about reading churches. But there, uh, is there any other place that if they want to uh, encounter more of your work, they can go to? Sure. If you go to liturgicalinstitute.org, liturgicalinstitute.org, that's the website for our place of study here. We have under media a section of videos. There's 10 videos of me talking about architecture. And uh, we also have now some online continuing education courses. One's on sacramental aesthetics or the theology of beauty that'll be coming up soon. That's at liturgy.online. And uh, one last thing, if it's not too self-promoting, is the book you're talking about, How to Read Churches, is kind of a regular little everyday handbook, but I did a more meaty book called Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy, Fantastic. which is inspired by Pope Benedict, but is, gives you the deeper theology of, of all the things we've been talking about today. Well, uh, again, Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, God bless in all your work, and we'll be seeing you here soon in Des Moines. Thanks again. Great. Thank you.
Well, folks, this is the Uncommon Good. Uh, may Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in our families, our city, our state, our nation, hemisphere, world, solar system, the whole thing. This is the Uncommon Good. We'll be back next week. But we're running out of time, but I really want to make sure. So I've been really hyping his Sunday talk, Dennis McNamara. Yeah. But then um, because my eyesight is fading and on the poster I have, this is a little uh, smaller. He's also speaking for the Catholic Lecture Series the Saturday before. So if you're uh, so Saturday, March 23rd at 7 o'clock, St. Augustine's Catholic Church. Um, he's going to be giving the talk, Shadow Image Reality, the Church Building as a Sacrament of Heaven. So you have two opportunities. Saturday, March 23rd at 7 p.m., St. Augustine. Sunday morning after 9.30 traditional Latin Mass at St. Anthony's, 11 at St. Anthony's, lunch and lecture. Two of the big things coming up. We also have the Iowa Catholic Men's Conference on March 30th out at St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and then the Iowa Catholic Radio Golf out and coming up on June 14th. All of those, if you go to iowacatholicradio.com, um, the Iowa Catholic Men's Conference is fantastic. Uh, I've got all sorts of people that promise that you want to go there. Uh, so iowacatholicradio.com. But like blazingly fast, what are other things they can do if they want to listen to us? Pray the rosary daily at 5.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 9.30 p.m. Well, this is the Uncommon Good for Bud Marr. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.